Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, we got a lot of economic data released today. Pretty much most of it bad and most of it worse than expected. But what was a little unexpected by me was the fact that the markets seemed to shrug it off. Initially, I think there was a little bit of a reaction in gold, which before 830 this morning, Eastern, when the first of the bad news came out, gold was down a couple of bucks and immediately jumped to up three bucks. Uh, but then it never really gained any momentum and it rolled over and it sold off about you know negative 10 bucks. So it was about a $13 sell off. Despite the weaker than expected economic news, the dollar index, would had, which had moved into negative territory immediately following the release, quickly recovered back to positive territory. Now, it's still early in the day. I'm recording, and you know, gold is still down four or five bucks. The dollar index is still up a bit. That could change as maybe some of this economic data has a chance to sink in. In fact, I noticed that the Atlanta Fed just reduced their estimate for third quarter GDP from 3.3 to 3%. Now, that's the second reduction that they've had in a row. You know, they they were up at 3.7 or 3.8 in early August. This is about the lowest estimate the Atlanta Fed has had in about two months. Now, this is still pretty high. Uh, I think other estimates are, are, are lower than 3%, but I still think they're much too optimistic on what we're ultimately gonna get for third quarter growth. But you know, even if we got 3%, when you just, you know, average it into the weak first quarter and the weak second quarter, it is still very very weak economic growth. But let's go over some of the data that came out today. We actually got a lot of data. I'm only going to go over the ones that I think were more relative. Retail sales, I think, was one of the bigger ones that came out at 8:30 this morning. And you know, everybody looks at retail sales to judge the health of the consumer. You know, how much money does he have? Is he going out and spending? And last month's number was relatively weak. It was flat. And they were looking for another flat month for August. Now, they did revise July up slightly from flat to up 0.1. But instead of getting 0% or flat for August, we're down 0.3. And it gets worse from there because less autos, they revised the prior month from down 0.3 to down 0.4. And in August, they were looking for up 0.3. We got down 0.1. And then less autos and gasoline, we were down last month 0.1. They were looking for up 0.4 this month, and we're down another 0.1. So very weak number across the board for consumer spending. Does it jive with uh, all the rosy forecasts? You know, Janet Yellen, the case for a rate hike has been improving. Well, not according Uh, to those numbers. Empire State Manufacturing, again, that came out about double the weakness that was expected. It was down 4.21 
Last month, it was supposed to be down 1% or 1%, and it was down basically 2 for August. So again, a weaker-than-expected number coming out. The market having very little uh, impact as a result of that number. The industrial production number that came out at 915, another very, very weak report. They were looking at a minus 0.2 for industrial production, which is a negative number. But instead, we got minus 0.4. So twice as bad. And they even revised the upward number last month downward a little bit from up 0.7 to up 0.6. So we got a bigger than expected drop from a lower than expected level. Uh, Manufacturing component uh, was expected as minus 0.3. We got minus 0.4. And capacity utilization, which was 75.9 last month, they were looking for a slight decline to 75.7. We got an even bigger decline to 75.5. Again, these are very, very weak numbers. If you look at industrial production, we're in a recession. I mean, this is the biggest streak of year-over-year declines in industrial production that we've ever had when the U.S. economy was not in a recession. In fact, if you look at these charts and just look at industrial production and look at, you know, over the last 100 years or whatever, you look at all the recessions, you would say, if you didn't have any other data, that the U.S. economy was now in recession. And in fact, we got more recession-level numbers coming out with business inventories, which were supposed to pick up again by 0.1, and instead they were flat. And it was all this, all this bad news that came out today that caused the Atlanta Fed uh, to revise down their estimates. You know, and when I was watching on television, when they were reporting the economic news that came out today, they were reporting it as if it was mixed because there were some numbers that came out better than expected, like the jobless claims was a little bit better than expected. But that almost happens every week that they're better than expected. And the Philly Fed Business Outlook Survey came in a little better than expected. But that doesn't mean it was a mixed bag because all the really important numbers were much worse than expected. And the numbers that really don't seem to count very much, okay, they were a little bit better. But on balance, you would have to argue that this was a very, very weak day. And I'm surprised, again, that we're not getting a bigger market reaction because next week is when the Fed is supposed to announce whether or not they're going to raise rates in in September. And I think the answer to that question is not only are they not going to raise rates in September, but I think they're going to have to do their best to reduce the expectations for a rate hike in December. Because what I did my last podcast, it was following that big rally that we had on Monday because the Fed cavalry came to the rescue or maybe more accurately, the doves flew into the rescue. They flocked in because there were three of them that came out and spoke about uh, how they have to go slow, why the economy wasn't strong enough for a rate hike and they needed to be cautious and err on the side of you know caution and not try to be preemptive. And we got this big stock market rally. But then on Tuesday, the stock market tanked and gave up the entire rally. And I was thinking that, you know, taking the September rate hike off the table is probably not enough because even though people as a result of the statements that were made on Monday, even though the odds of a September rate hike went way down, the odds of a December rate hike, I think, went up a little bit. And so whatever the Fed giveth in September 
as far as take a thing away, they, they, you know, they, they take it away in December. And so what good is the Fed telling the markets, don't worry, we're not going to raise rates in September, but we're going to raise them in December. There's not a lot of time between September and December. I mean, the only thing that takes place between those two months of any significance is the election, which makes people think maybe the only reason the Fed isn't raising rates is because of the election. And so once the election is over, the Fed's going to raise rates. And I think that's what the market is worried about. They're worried about a December rate hike. Just not having one in September doesn't do very much if December, you know, we get one. So I think what the Fed is going to have to do next week If they want to prevent a potentially larger decline in the stock market, which I'm sure they do prior to the election, they're going to have to do something to reduce the odds of a December rate hike, if not have the December hike removed from the table. But the fine line that the Fed is trying to walk is how do you do that without undermining the narrative of recovery? Because the Fed wants to pretend that the economy is doing great because Obama wants to take credit for it and Hillary wants to run uh, with that in her in her pocket. She wants to run on four more years of economic success and the Fed has to validate that. So how does the Fed reduce the expectations for a rate hike while pretending the economy is still recovering? It's very difficult to do that, but that's what they're going to try to do because they don't want to raise rates But they don't want to say we're not raising rates because the economy is weak, because that plays into Donald Trump. And, you know, this whole idea that rates are only going to go up if the economy is is strong. I mean, they've been saying this for years. I was watching on CNBC yesterday. They had a guy, uh, a CEO of one of the home builders. He was talking about how the home building stocks react negatively anytime they talk about a quarter point rate hike. And he said that they shouldn't do that. He says that because Rising rates means we have a strong economy, and a strong economy is good for the home builders because in a strong economy, people want to buy homes, and so you have to build them. But this is all nonsense. I mean, this is a housing bubble, number one. But if the Fed raises rates, it's not because the economy is strong. They're raising rates despite the fact that the economy is weak. They're only raising them because they're artificially low. They're raising them because they're too low and there's problems keeping them this low. And so if they raise rates, they're doing it not because they want to, because they feel they have to. And if rates are going up and the economy isn't getting any stronger, that's bad for housing. And in fact, if rates are going up, despite the fact that the economy is getting weaker, which would in fact be the case if the Fed were to raise rates, then that's horrible for the home builders. But everybody still believes that it's all about a strong economy. Look, if it was about a strong economy, nobody would be thinking that rates were going up because the economy is clearly weaker today than it was in years past when the Fed didn't hike rates. So if they didn't hike rates a couple of years ago when the economy was much stronger than it is today, then why are they going to raise them now? Again, it's got nothing to do with the economy. Now, there was this um, conference in New York this week, the Delivering Alpha Conference, and there were a lot of people who spoke on Tuesday. And it got a lot of coverage in the press because there were a lot of these high-profile hedge fund billionaires who were speaking very negatively about the Fed. And what they were saying was that the Fed's policy of 0% interest rates and quantitative easing had been a failure that it hadn't delivered the economic growth that was promised, that, in fact, 
it had actually undermined economic growth, that it undermined capital investment, and that as a result of what the Fed has done, the economy has grown less than it would have had they not done it. So in other words, it didn't help. It was counterproductive, or it did more harm than good. I don't think it did any good. I think it only did harm. The only good that it did, to the extent that you want to call it good, is it numbed us to the pain and allowed the illness to get worse, right? It, temporarily, we felt better because of what the Fed did, but there is going to be a huge cost exacted as a result of that. It, it came with a heavy price tag. All that short-term relief is going to come with a lot of long-term pain. You know, normally what you want is you want short-term pain to get long-term gain. Instead, we got short-term relief for a lot of long-term pain. And so these hedge fund guys were pointing this out, and they also said that the Fed had you know, put itself in a bad predicament now because by keeping interest rates low for so long and building up this bubble, uh, this phony market or phony economy, that it was going to be very difficult for the Fed now to remove the accommodation. They said that it's, it's, it's a problem if the Fed raises rates, but they also acknowledge that it's a bigger problem if the Fed doesn't raise rates. They're damned that they do and they're damned that they don't. Because if they raise rates, they prick the bubble. If they don't raise rates, the bubble gets bigger. Eventually it pops. And so no matter what happens, we're pretty much screwed. This is what these guys were saying. And they got a lot of press for it. There were articles written about it. They were talking about it on television. These guys calling out the Fed. And all I'm thinking is, yeah, what took them so long? I mean, they're not saying anything different than what I said seven years ago. I mean, the only thing that's different is when I listen to some of these guys talk, I still don't think they understand exactly how bad it is. They know it's bad, but it's actually worse than they think. Now, it's possible that they do know how bad it is. They're just not saying it. So it's worse than what they're saying, but maybe it's not worse than what they're thinking because I can't get inside their heads. I don't know what they really think. Maybe they're afraid if they come out, you know, too apocalyptic, you know, they sound too much like Peter Schiff. They're just going to be labeled as a gloom and doomer and nobody is going to take them seriously. But people seem to be taking them seriously. But the point is, where were these guys seven years ago? Where were they when the Fed was first proposing and then implementing these policies. Because if you remember what I was saying in 2009, when the Fed did this, I said, this is a mistake. I said, lowering interest rates to zero is a mistake because they're never going to be able to bring them back up again. They're just making the problem worse. I said, quantitative easing is going to create problems because once they start, they can't stop. Yeah, I said, it's a monetary roach motel. They're going to check us in and they can never check us out. How did I know that? See, I didn't have to wait for the Fed's policies to fail, to know they were going to fail. I knew they were going to fail before they implemented them because I understood from the beginning what they were proposing was counterproductive. You had an economy that had too much consumption and too much debt and too much speculation brought on by artificially low interest rates. And what we needed was a restructuring where we built up our savings and reduced our consumption so that we can increase our capital investment and increase our production and repair the damage done by years of artificially low interest rates. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that more cheap money than keeping interest rates even lower for even longer wasn't going to work. 
no more than I would think that the way to sober up is to drink more alcohol. If a guy is drunk and he drinks more alcohol, why would I expect him to get sober? He's just going to get even more drunk. So I was saying all this stuff at the beginning. I was issuing my warnings when there was still time to do something about it. I said at the beginning, these proposals are wrong. They are going to undermine the economy. They are going to exacerbate the very problems they're trying to solve. We will be in a worse economic situation. We are digging ourselves into a deeper hole. All the things that went wrong, I described them in advance, and now they've all gone wrong. Right now, you got a bunch of guys coming out after the fact and saying, hey, the, pet, the Fed's policies didn't work. Now, I at least give them credit for recognizing that they didn't work because most people still think they worked. But the real key was knowing that they weren't going to work in advance. Right? I didn't have to watch them fail to know they didn't work because I knew they weren't going to work before they started it. But the crazy thing is you got so many people that still think they worked. Right? That, that is the amazing part of it. When is everybody else going to wake up? Obviously, you got a few hedge fund billionaires that have woken up. But how much longer until more and more people figure out that the warnings that I gave seven years ago were accurate? And of course, you know, what didn't happen is that the dollar didn't crash and neither did the bond market. But all the other things that I said were going to happen have happened. The only thing that hasn't happened is the end result. And why is it that the dollar hasn't tanked yet, despite the fact that the Fed stimulus didn't deliver what was promised, that it actually screwed up the economy exactly the way I said it was going to screw up the economy? The reason is because most people still haven't figured out what these hedge fund titans have, that the policies haven't worked. Because so many people believe the policies have worked, they're buying the dollar. They were buying treasuries, right? It's only when people figure out that the policies failed. And it's because the policy fails that they're going to do it again. Remember, what caused the big rally in the dollar was the belief that because QE and 0% interest rates were so successful, that the Fed was going to end the program. And it was the anticipation of the tightening, of the normalization of interest rates, of the shrinking of the Fed's balance sheet, that was what built the rally in the dollar. But that was false. As people figure out that the Fed can't normalize interest rates, it can't shrink its balance sheet. In fact, its balance sheet is going to grow again. And not only are they not going to normalize rates, they're going to bring them back to zero. And in fact, this time, zero ain't low enough. They're going to go negative. So we're going to get negative interest rates. We're going to get QE. And it's not just going to be bonds and mortgage-backed securities that they buy. They're going to start buying corporate bonds. They might buy muni bonds. They even might buy stocks. Who knows what they're going to monetize? They're already floating all kinds of trial balloons on the various assets that they, that they might be monetizing. So when people figure out that they had it all wrong, well, that's when the bottom's going to drop out of the dollar. And then ultimately, it's going to drop out of the bond market, too. Because what is the bond market? The bond market is an IOU dollars. The bond market is a promise to pay you dollars in the future. And so as people lose confidence in dollars in the present, then a dollar in the future is even less valuable than one today. So eventually, when the dollar bubble bursts, it's going to take the bond bubble with it, and this whole economy is going to implode, and then the economic events of 2008 right, are going to look like that Sunday school picnic, the proverbial Sunday school picnic, because they're going to be so much worse, because we've, for the last seven, eight years, we have exacerbated all of the problems.
But again, nobody recognizes it, how similar everything is. I get a kick, too, when I go back and I, I, I look at all my appearances on CNBC or CNN or Bloomberg uh, from 2005, 2006, 2007. You know, I, again, I used to get on television all the time back then. They had me on. Uh, they couldn't get enough of me because they, used to, I, they brought me on for comic relief. I would say all this crazy stuff about a housing bubble and a coming financial crisis and all these problems. And it was, it was, they had a lot of fun, you know, when they could make fun of me. But then when all those predictions came true, it became harder and harder for me to get on, on television. And in fact, you know, it's still very hard. I was supposed to be on CNBC on Wednesday. I was going to be on Fast Money, which is one of the few shows on CNBC that still has me on. Uh, but they abruptly canceled me uh, last minute. I mean, that's just the way it's been. I mean, most of the time when somebody does get around to booking me, they cancel me last minute. Why? What are they going to put on? You know, your typical clown who doesn't say anything of any value, who just talks about, you know, how great everything is and how, you know, the, how wonderful the Fed is and how wonderful the economy is and how you should just buy stocks. Right. The same old nonsense uh, that, that that was going on earlier. And, you know, they don't even look the last time I was on Fast Money. I put the video clip up on my YouTube channel and it's got about 240,000 views. I mean, 240,000 views on YouTube. I mean, that's probably more than twice the number of people who actually watch the show uh, on CNBC. I mean, you go look at CNBC.com and you look at their typical video. They don't even get 100 views, 20, 30 views when, you know, their, their, their YouTube channel has been up longer than mine. Yet I have more views than they do. Uh, and you would think, gee, the audience likes Peter Schiff because when he when, we, when he puts the, the interview on YouTube, he gets hundreds of thousands of people to actually watch it. Maybe we ought to have him on more often. You know, but I think that most of these uh, networks, the last thing they want to do is have me on because they remember, God, you know, you really got this right before, you know, <laughs> you know, now they just can't laugh at me, although they try to. And but the problem is that they just look at the markets and they say, well, Peter, you've been talking about a weak dollar or strong gold and look, gold hasn't gone up in the last few years and the dollar hasn't gone down. And that's true. But all of the other things that I said would happen to the U.S. economy and with respect to the Fed, all those things have happened. So all the things that led me to conclude that the dollar would go down and that gold would go up, all those things have happened. It's just that the markets haven't reacted yet. And the reason is because the world still doesn't accept as true all the forecasts I've made. But that is changing. Some people are figuring it out. Case in point, these billionaires over at uh, Delivering Alpha. And you know what? People are going to listen to them. Maybe they don't listen to Peter Schiff. Maybe I'm too outside the box. Maybe I'm just part of the gold bug, gloom and doom community. And so nobody in the real world takes me seriously, but they might take these guys seriously. And so it might you know, cause more people to connect the dots and see this for what it is. And so when we get uh, the Fed coming out uh, next week with some other excuse why they can't raise rates in September and then maybe lowering the expectations for December, yet still keeping the remote possibility alive that they're going to raise in December. And then we get the election. And by the way, as I said in the last podcast, Donald Trump continues to rise in the polls and 
the more likely it is that Trump gets elected, the more worried uh, the powers that be are going to be and the more incentive they're going to have to try to artificially goose this economy. And in fact, Donald Trump is specifically calling out the Fed for using monetary policy to try to elect Hillary Clinton by trying to preserve the Obama legacy, at least until after he gets out of Dodge. And then when it all falls apart, I mean, they would love nothing better than at least if it falls apart to have it happen on Trump's watch. As if somehow everything was great, and then Donald Trump came in, everything, everything imploded, and then they can conveniently blame it all on Trump instead of having to accept responsibility for what happened during the eight years of the Obama administration. But the higher he gets in those polls, the more incentive they have, because they do not want this stock market tanking into the November election. They want everybody feeling good about the economy, and a bellwether indicator of good times is a high stock market. They just have to convince the masses that things are going to get better for them, right? They see the rich getting richer because of the stock market, and the way they keep the hope alive is by promising to redistribute all that ill-gotten wealth, right? They want to maintain the illusion that there's all this money so that they can say, we're going to take it for you. We're going to redistribute it, right? Once Hillary Clinton gets in office and she raises taxes on the rich and redistributes all that money to the deserving masses, oh, then everybody's going to get better. But if the markets are collapsing, then, you know, there's, there's, there's not a big pile of money to loot, right? You got to keep the voters believing that there's money to steal and that they feel that it's not. And, of course, just the psychological impact of the markets going down. So you've got all this, uh, you know, incentives for the Fed. So why people believe that they're about to raise interest rates makes no sense. But we, the markets are going to have to or the Fed is going to have to do something to reduce the expectation of even a December rate hike, to think that, OK, well, the Fed is just staying on hold until the election. But then after the election, they're going to start hiking rates. I still think that it's far more likely that after the election is when they start cutting rates, is when they start relaunching QE, because by then there's no longer uh, any political reason to try to maintain the pretense that everything is great. You don't have to pretend that the recovery is here. You can acknowledge or accept the recession and try to do something about it without worrying about the political fallout. Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies. Hello, this is Peter Schiff. I bet you didn't know that without silver, you wouldn't be hearing this podcast right now or be able to use a computer at all. From laptops to smartphones to TVs to speakers, virtually all modern electronics use silver to conduct electricity. Did you know that the average solar panel uses two-thirds of an ounce of silver to function? 
And the solar industry is expanding dramatically, not just in America, but in booming developing nations like China and India. Silver is naturally antibacterial and is used extensively in modern medicine. Silver coatings are being added to breathing tubes, bandages, catheters, and other medical instruments to reduce the spread of infections. When antibiotics fail, silver still works. I believe the 21st century will be the century of silver. As fiat currencies continue to collapse and new uses are found for silver every day, the white metal's strong industrial demand and low per ounce price will make it increasingly attractive to savers around the world. At today's prices, people of any age and background can afford to buy some silver. Learn why silver is a smart and reliable investment in my free special report, The Powerful Case for Silver. Visit shiftsilver.com and download it now. The Powerful Case for Silver includes information about silver's amazing chemical properties. It also explains why I believe silver may outperform gold in the coming years. Download The Powerful Case for Silver and educate yourself, your friends, and your family about the white metal. Just visit shiftsilver.com to download my free report. That's shiftsilver.com.